Luke chapter 11 tonight, as we begin this series, uh, we have a few introductory sermons, um, kind of on the subject of prayer more generally, and, and looking at what occasioned Jesus to give the Lord's Prayer tonight in Luke, next week in Matthew. Um, so three sermons there kind of in preparation before we dig into the various petitions of the Lord's Prayer. And so those three weeks. And then, um, as Perry did make mention, if you weren't aware, then we will be heading off to um, England where I'm speaking at a conference and, pre- and preaching at several churches, um, five Five sermons in, in a few days there in England, so would definitely um, appreciate prayers for safety. And then when return, we'll dive back into, into this um, new series for the summer. And then in the morning, uh, in about two weeks or so, um, we will start a summer series also looking at uh, the covenants of, of the Bible. So that's where we're headed, but for tonight, Luke chapter 11 and verse... One. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. It has been said that praying is to the Christian what crying is to the newborn. It's the proof of life. The moment air fills the lungs of a baby for the first time, their reaction to that strange, bizarre sensation is to cry. And yet, for the parents of that child, there's nothing sweeter than the sound of that crying because it's the proof that they're breathing, that they're alive. And so people have said that prayer is the proof of spiritual life, spiritual vitality, filling the soul of a believer. But if that's true, one might surmise that there are plenty of individuals who claim to be born again, rightly so, true enough, but it would appear that their regeneration must be as nothing more than a stillbirth. That, tragically, there are a critical number of people who claim to be Christians and yet do not pray, or hardly at all, which is to say they hardly breathe. And maybe you are one of those Christians tonight. How can this be, though? J.I. Packer says that for the Christian, prayer is the most natural activity in which we could ever engage. For the Christian. Is that your experience that prayer just comes naturally to you? John Calvin in his institutes declared that words fail to explain how necessary prayer is in the life of a believer. Well, Helma Sabrocco writes that a Christian is a supplicant. Prayer is the very essence of religion, after all. And think about it. The Bible uh, sums up the start of the, the true faith and religion in the world with this phrase in Genesis 4. At that time, people began to do what? Call upon the name of the Lord, to invoke his name, to cry out to him, to pray. And it has also not gone by unnoticed that in Matthew's treatment of the Lord's Prayer, which comes in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, it is right in the center of the Sermon on the Mount. 
A sermon that's all about what it means to be a disciple. It's as though Jesus were showing us that our prayer life is integral, an integral component to our Christian life as a whole. We pray as we live and we live as we pray. And that's not good news for some of us. So how can we square what the Bible teaches us about the necessity of prayer in the life of the believer and the lack of it in the lives of many, perhaps yourself included? I know that even as a pastor, one who, you know, in a sense it might sound crass, but it's totally accurate to say I get paid to pray. Acts 6, 4 says that. Somebody who gets paid to pray and yet I'm shamefully struck at times in my life that seem to be devoid of meaningful Deep, sincere prayer. If you've ever had that moment of conviction, oftentimes what we think immediately is, what can we do to remedy the situation? What, what, what tips or tricks do I need to become a better prayer? Now, we look into prayer journals. We get new prayer helps. We think up a new routine. Maybe if I... Uh, do it in this room of the house or at this time of day. But I would suggest to you, friends, that the tips and the tricks, as helpful as they may, may be at times, that's kind of putting the uh, prayer cart before the prayer horse. Because when we're convicted of the lack of prayer in our lives, our lack of communication with our God and our Savior, we need to take our cue from the disciples in Luke 11, verse 1, and notice what do they ask of Jesus? What's the question? What's the request? Jesus is praying in a certain place by himself, seemingly, you know, uh, off to the side, and yet the disciples see him. And when he's done praying, what's the question? What's the request? Lord, teach us to pray. Notice what they don't ask. They don't say, Lord, teach us how to pray. Although undoubtedly that is wrapped up in in the request. But they are acknowledging in, in the way that that question is framed that before they can learn to pray well, they need to learn to pray, period. To pray at all. Lord, teach us to pray. So they're asking for so much more than a formula or a guide to prayer. They're asking the Lord for a, a, a heart change, a desire to pray. And this request, in the words again of J.I. Packer, is a momentous request. Have you ever echoed it? Have, it? have you ever asked of Jesus, Lord, teach me to pray. Make me a praying person. It's in response to that request that Jesus will go on to, to give them uh, for the second time that prayer we, we call the Lord's Prayer. And as I mentioned, we'll get into it in the weeks ahead. But tonight, we want to sit with this problem that plagued the disciples and many disciples since. Why don't we pray at all in the first place? Why is there such a lack of meaningful prayer in our lives? Uh, this must really be the, the starting place in a series on prayer. For we can know all the biblical and theological uh, data about prayer. But if we're not doing it, or at least if we're not doing it in any real, um, consistent way or in any sort of depth, then it really doesn't matter what we know about prayer. We need to do it in the first place. And so that's where we begin tonight. We're investigating the source of our silence. We are starting there before we could ever hope to, to graduate to greater spiritual things like how to pray. First, it's make me pray. 
In the words of one perceptive Christian, you can do more than pray after you have prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. So, why don't we pray? Three reasons tonight I want to suggest to you. The first reason that Christians may find that they pray far too infrequently is because of bad theology. Bad Theology, And if this is perhaps what is plaguing you, it doesn't necessarily mean that you don't know your catechism or, or your Bible well. It doesn't mean that you would fail a theological exam. Rather, it could mean that you have absorbed or imbibed, uh, uh, perhaps even unconsciously, suppositions about God, about, about how the world works, about yourself even, that are just patently false and untrue. And so I want to suggest to you three inconspicuous but nevertheless insidious theological errors that we might be uh, holding on to that are hindering our prayer life. Uh, we might, first off, uh, first off, tell ourselves that prayer is superfluous. It's a superfluous act because we affirm the omniscience of God. Aren't we good theologians? Aren't we good Reformed people? We believe that God is omniscient, that he knows all. So because of that, isn't prayer kind of a superfluous act? We think, why should I waste my time telling God something he already knows? Certainly, we have had experience in our life where people waste our time telling us things we already know. We try to will people, yes, okay, get on, I know this, I've heard this story before. And we think, well, why should I do that to God? He knows the end from the beginning. Of course, the Bible tells us that God's omniscience in no way negates his interest in us. Rather, he says to us as as we're told in the Song of Songs, chapter 2 and verse 14, he says, let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet. That's what God says through Jesus Christ to his church. Let me hear your voice. I love the tones of your voice. If I could put it this way, it is though for God there is no sound sweeter than the voice of a humbled sinner telling God something he already knows. No sound sweeter than for God to hear a Christian telling him something he already knows. And so we want the psalmist to correct our bad theology. Psalm 116, I love the Lord because, why? Because he has heard my voice. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice, because he inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call upon him as long as I live. Did you note what the psalmist is saying? Because he listens to me, I'm going to pray all the more. doesn't matter if he knows it, but he, he takes the time to listen to me. And since there's, since there's this God who would incline his ear to me, why would I not pray all the more? So we might think that prayer is a superfluous act. Well, we might secretly believe that prayer is a pointless act because of God's sovereignty. Because we, we might believe, if we're good old Reformed people, that we know that God has ordained all things that should ever come to pass before time even began. No amount of prayer is going to change God's eternal decree. And on the one hand, we want to affirm that that is true. There's nothing that can change God's decree. And that's a good thing. But then we ask this question. How has God ordained that eternal decree to come to pass? How has God ordained his unchangeable will to, to kind of fall out in our lives? How does, 
how does he work that will out in our lives? And the answer is sometimes in answer to our prayers. Think about Moses and Israel in Numbers 13 and and 14. They're complaining um, uh, about, well, they complain about everything, don't they? And they're saying, oh, that we had just died in Egypt. And why'd you bring us out in the wilderness to kill us here? We went through all that trudging along and traveling and they doubt the promise of the land. The spies have come back and, you know, they're not listening to Caleb and Joshua. They're listening to the others and they're saying these guys are pretty scary. Maybe this land isn't, isn't really all that it's chalked up to be. And God is angry with his people. And God threatened to annihilate them. And the question is, because you know the story, he doesn't. Because Moses intercedes. The question is, was it that Moses' powerful prayer of intercession somehow changed God's mind? Or was it that God had determined before time began that he would spare his people through the prayer of Moses? Of course, that's the answer. Matthew Henry about that story, says, See the power of prayer and the delight God takes in putting an honor upon prayer. He designed the pardon, but Moses will have the praise of obtaining it by prayer. It's all God's work. He designed it, and yet it's as though Moses would be able to say, I prayed and the people were saved. This does not threaten God's sovereignty. The Lord's decision to make his own, his own actions contingent upon human prayers does not threaten or conflict with his sovereignty. And so in that way, we can say prayer really does have power. Prayer does have power because it's God's appointed means for us to experience God's eternally ordained and decreed blessings. So prayer is not pointless. Rather, prayer has been appointed by God for us to experience the things that he has ordained before time began. Prayer is not a waste. That's a theological error, a a final theological error we might be uh, assuming. Not only could prayer be superfluous or pointless, but maybe it's unnecessary. It it is at times an unnecessary act because we have the current situation under control. And so we don't need um, to bother God with our our business. You know, we would say, uh, sure, there are times when prayer is warranted. You know, the big things in life, when things go wrong, when there's trouble, when there's um, uh, trials... Today's a pretty routine day. You know, look at the calendar. I don't really have anything big going on. It's kind of the usual stuff. And so no need to, no need to bother the Lord with any requests. Of course, what the Bible teaches us is that apart from clinging to Christ, we can do nothing. John fifteen five. Apart from me, you can do nothing. We're, we forget what the total and total depravity means, that, that our sin, our weakness affects every aspect of our lives. There isn't one aspect of who we are, what we do, that wouldn't be in some way tainted or rendered imperfect and weak because of sin. And so right theology gives us a right view, not only of God, but of ourselves, that he is everything and we are nothing. And yet in prayer, we in our nothingness can tap into the everythingness of God. And we must do that all the time, always. Herman Witsius writes that if we look at ourselves, a wide view of the necessity and advantage of prayer is instantly open. If you just look at yourself, 
because in ourselves we are want of all things, so that unless supported by divine aid, we cannot subsist for a moment. And we know, he says, for the most part, God does not choose to bestow blessings except an answer to prayer. And so we see that if our theology gets warped ever so subtly, in just a few key areas, our prayer life suffers. But conversely, acquainting ourselves with what the Bible really says about God, about how he works, about how he loves to hear our praise and our prayers, we will then learn the motivation we need to this great work of prayer. Why don't we pray? Maybe, friends, I posit to you, maybe tonight you need to check your theology. And there's a second reason. Even if our theology is spot on, which I, I know, I, I trust is true for many in this room. Uh, people that, that are experienced in in Presbyterian Reformed churches uh, usually have a pretty good grasp on theology. But even so, prayer can still be a difficulty. Why is that? Well, that's the second reason. That's because of our weak flesh. Our weak flesh. Prayer is, is a battle. Prayer is a battle of the new spirit against the old flesh. In the exercise of prayer, we are, we are experiencing the reality of Paul's words in Romans 8. Um, or Romans 7, excuse me. I delight in the law of God in my inner being. This is what I really want, is to do what God decrees. I delight in that law. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members, in my body. Prayer's a really good thing, but the good I want to do, I do not do. At, at the lowest point... In his, at the near lowest point in his earthly ministry and life, Jesus knew he needed to do what we need to do at our low points. That's pray. And so he goes to the garden and he prays. And he also needed something else that we often need in our low points, and that's friends. And he needed something from those friends, and that is prayer. Right? We say, I, I covet your prayers. Jesus coveted the prayers of his closest friends at that moment, the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember the story? You remember what happens? He goes away and he prays and he comes back. And his, his best friends, his disciples, his students, the people who lived with him the last three years, traveled all over with him for the last three years, are asked by their master, would you pray for me in this moment? What does he find? They're asleep. And in response, Jesus captures the essence of our lethargy and prayer. Mark 14, 38. Watch and pray that you may not enter in temptation, for the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. That's just a true statement in a fallen world uh, for the Christian. The spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. And yet, isn't it interesting where Jesus makes that comment? It's in, uh, it's in the discussion of prayer. And I think that's where we perhaps experience that in, in the most... Uh, in the most powerful ways is when we're praying. That's really when we learn how weak our flesh is, no matter how willing our spirit might be. And so we, we, we have this experience, do we not? Is it, is it just me that, you know, moments when you think, I should pray? I, I, I want to pray. I am going to pray. And then 
you know, you wake up 30 minutes and you're drooling and what? What? Or maybe it's not that you fall asleep. You just start thinking about something entirely different. What's happening in those moments is a lot more serious than, than we often realize. It is quite literally the forces of hell engaging in an all-out assault on our soul. Because the last thing the devil wants, friends, is for you to commune with your God and Savior. And so drowsiness daydreaming, and yes, even push notifications are all weapons employed by the evil one to keep us from growing in godliness. And if that's true, that means that the solution to weak flesh actually resides in the spiritual realm. So taking practical steps like silencing your phone or locking the door so you know the kids won't interrupt you or, or whatever it might be, those steps are so important and they're good. But ultimately, weak flesh must be combated by a strong faith. That's the answer to our weak flesh. It's a strong faith, a conviction that the prayer we're about to engage in actually matters, that this is something worth giving 10 minutes of my day to. This is something doing with, with a, a, a concertedness, a concentration Because it actually does something. It does something to my soul. It brings me closer to my Savior. It does something for my friends and family who I pray for. It does something for the world. The things that can be unleashed when we just pray. When we have faith in that, then we will do it. We need to have faith in what God's Word tells us about prayer. In 1 John, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. The reason, friends, we don't pray the way we ought to pray is because we don't have faith, strong faith, unshakable faith in that promise. If we really believe that, we would be on our knees far more often than we are. And we would find that that vestiges of the old man would slowly but surely be conquered because strong faith wins out over weak flesh every time. And so we have seen thus far that the lack of prayer in our lives can be explained by bad theology, by weak faith. But finally, a third problem I would suggest to you, and that is that the absence of prayer may be indicative of the absence of Christ. The absence of prayer in your life could be indicative of the absence of Christ in your life. Or if I could put it another way, we will commune with God in prayer to the extent that we contemplate Christ. We will commune with God in prayer to the extent in which we contemplate upon Christ. And we look back to Luke 11. What is it that provokes that disciple to ask this question? Make this request, Lord, teach us to pray. Why does he say that? He sees Jesus praying. He's near Christ. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. The disciples, they saw Jesus praying, and it pricked their hearts. It's as though, I think it's as though the, the joy and the glory of communing with his heavenly father was, was emanating off of Jesus and they could see it. They could see that this was something different. This was something amazing. Maybe they could almost taste it even. And what, what they're asking there is, is, 
I want some of that. Can I, can I have that? How do I get what you have? Teach us to do what you have just done. That is the request. Have you ever been so taken by the, the skill or the ability of a particular individual that you would almost give anything to be equally skilled or gifted? I remember uh, one time sitting down some years ago with a friend at, at the piano as he began to play and produce some of the most beautiful tones I had ever had the pleasure of hearing. His, his fingers moved um, with such ease and yet in complex patterns up and down uh, the keyboard. And as, as somebody who can you know, just barely plunk out a few notes myself, my immediate reaction is, I wish I could play like that. How, how do you do it? And my friend kind of sheepishly you know, said, well, I have been playing my whole life. Don't you expect that that's something of the reaction that the disciples would have had as they witnessed Jesus praying? I mean, he's the expert in prayer, isn't he? The one who's communing with the Father his whole life. I've been doing this my whole life. In, into the ages of eternity past, even, he's been communing in perfect fellowship with his Father. The one who we know now always lives to make intercession for his people. And so that means when you know Christ, you know real prayer. And to see the real thing makes you want it yourself. So I wonder, I wonder, for me, do I not pray enough because I don't have enough Jesus? I wonder for you, friends, do you not have enough prayer in your lives because you don't have enough Christ? If we're to acquaint ourselves with the person and the work of, of our Savior and, and to read what the Scriptures tell us about him and, and about how he prayed, which he did so often in terms of what, what's actually recorded for us in the Gospels, it's astounding how many times we're told Jesus is praying. If we acquaint ourselves with that, then I, I believe our relationship with prayer would change. Robert Murray McShane has a famous line where he said, If I could hear... Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. You get the point, right? If, if, if he could hear how powerful that prayer was coming from his mediator, then he would know nothing could harm him. If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I wouldn't fear a million enemies. And yet, I think we could also say if we could hear Christ praying in the next room, not only would we not fear, I think we would start praying too. Because there's something about Christ's prayers that don't only comfort us, but they compel us. They compel us. They compel me to attain something of that same sweet communion that Jesus shares with his Father. Don't you want that? I mean, that is the Christian life. It's communion with God. It's to be brought in to, to the, the eternally blessed communion of a triune of our triune god and that's something that we we get to access in a particular way when we pray don't you want that of course our our comfort is that we have a savior who prays for us when we don't we have a spirit who perfects our prayers when they're so warped and 
wicked. But tonight, see that Savior who prays. Know that Spirit that is ready and willing and able to help and desire to pray yourself. So do you want to know how to pray? Do you want to learn to pray? Are you wondering what to do? You have to start with this momentous request of the disciples. Lord, teach us to pray. I tell you, friends, if you make that request of Jesus, there is nothing he would rather do than grant it. And in fact, here's the wonderful thing. When you ask that of Jesus, Lord, teach me to pray, you'll figure out you've already begun. Let's pray. Almighty God, we acknowledge that we come to you far too little. You have given us prayer as a gift, as a grace, a means of grace, and we take it for granted, we neglect it, we forget it, and we confess that tonight. We're so, we're so comforted to know that Jesus Christ stands ready to give us a spirit of prayer, to answer that request, Lord, teach us to pray. Make us do it. Give us a heart for it. If we ask that of him, he'll not turn us away. So give us the faith to start there, to do just that. A correct, a bad theology that might be hindering our prayer life, or, or Lord, would you also overcome the weak flesh that we know holds us back from praying the way that we should. But above all, show us Christ. Give us something of what the disciples saw to see him in perfect fellowship with you and communion with you. Help us to see him, to know him, to know what he does and desire to, to desire to do it along with him. We are so grateful, O oh Father, that you draw us into fellowship with yourself and that you cause us to experience your glory through this simple act, but profound act of prayer. So indeed, make us a praying people. In Jesus' name, amen.